presence of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have become all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign, so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured, we are dishonoured. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I become your father through the gospel. Therefore I urge you to imitate me. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks to be God. We don't like looking foolish, do we? I think uh, for many people it is perhaps their greatest fear. Uh, At Synod last year, uh, that's a gathering of representatives uh, from churches all over the diocese, I was asked to second a motion which involves uh, giving a short address. Um, So we moved our motion, and there were lots of comments from the floor and uh, different feedback. And as I stood on the stage uh, with my colleague who had moved this motion, I said to her, I'd I'd like to respond to some of these points that are being made. They weren't um, altogether positive, some of them. Um, And she actually had to ask the archbishop whether that was okay. And there up on the stage, the archbishop in front of everyone said, well, it's highly irregular, uh, highly irregular, but I'll allow it. Uh, So I stepped forward in front of hundreds of people and... uh, 
as I thought about how I was going to respond to these comments, I suddenly started to think about how what I said might be interpreted or misinterpreted, and it really threw me. And my head just completely emptied. I couldn't think of anything to say. And I just wanted the, uh, I wanted there to be a trapdoor in the stage to open and swallow me. Uh, I believe the, the argument I was trying to make was uh, a good one. I won't go into the details. But in my efforts to make it, I looked like a complete fool. At least that's how it felt to me. And you understand, uh, this is not me being or looking a fool for Christ per se. I'm just, just looking a fool. Um, I won't forget that in a hurry. We don't enjoy looking foolish, do we? And yet Paul said that he and the other apostles were fools for Christ. We're going to be thinking about what that could mean today. Paul begins by saying, This then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. The word for servant that Paul uses on this occasion denotes uh, an overseer or a, a, a housekeeper, someone who would look after the estate on, uh, for the, on behalf of the master. And this is, of course, a position of great trust, uh, but it's often a role that would be given to a slave. So what, Paul, what has Paul been entrusted with? Well, not a household or an estate, but the mysteries God has revealed. And what are these mysteries? Well, we looked at, at this last week. God has revealed the gospel, Christ and him crucified, and all that that means for us and for the whole of creation. Paul has been entrusted with making the gospel known, and he must prove faithful. He must diligently persevere in his task. But more than that, he must ensure that he remains true to the message he's been entrusted with, not taking anything away from the message, nor adding anything to it. Imagine a wealthy man who owns a vineyard uh, that's a good few kilometers away from the main house. And it's harvest time. And a messenger comes from the vineyard and he says, Master, we need more workers. There's bad weather coming. We don't think we can collect all the grapes in time. So the master gives him this message. He says, go back to the the other workers, go to the team and tell them, don't worry. Do what you can. I'll send more workers this afternoon. So the servant arrives back at the vineyard and he, he talks to the other workers and he wants to be concise So he just delivers one word of his master's message. He looks at the team, he tells them, the master says, worry. Just picks that one word. And they're like, what, what, did he, did he say anything else? No, just worry. Has the servant been faithful? Well, of course not, because he's missed out the majority of what his master actually said. He's taken away from the message, and so it takes on a whole new meaning. But what if the servant got back to the team and said, well, the master says, don't worry, put your feet up, drink some wine. He's going to send a hundred workers out this afternoon. They'll make short work of all this. In that case, uh, has he been faithful? Well, no, 
because he's added to the master's message and he's completely distorted it. Again, it means something totally different from what the master actually said. And that's how it is when we're sharing the gospel. We are to share it faithfully and that means not taking anything away and not adding anything of our own. And Paul says words to the effect of, I don't really care what you or anyone else thinks of my ministry because you are not my judge. God is my judge. And in verse 4 he says, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. How can he say that? How can he know he's not innocent and say my conscience is clear? That's a contradiction in terms, isn't it? Sounds kind of foolish, doesn't it? But it's only Christians who can say this. We know that we're not innocent. We know that we're sinful and broken. And we know that we think and we say and we do all kinds of things that are not God's will for us. But we also know that Jesus has taken our sin upon himself. He's taken it away. So that when a person puts their trust in Christ... God looks at them as being pure and holy and blameless. Jesus takes away our guilt and shame. Through him, we can have a clear conscience. And that is the starting point from where we actually start to deal with the sin in our lives. Paul says that God will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. Uh, We'll talk about the... Corinthians motives shortly, but it's worth remembering that nothing is hidden from God. Nothing is hidden from God. For the most part, we can hide our darkest thoughts and feelings and motives from the people around us, but they are completely exposed to God. When I was running Alpha online last year, it had been a little while before I'd, uh, since I'd um, used Zoom, I was getting used to it again. And uh, there was one particular week where I was running a bit behind, so I put the video on, and then I went to get my dinner, and I was saving some time. I was watching the video and eating my dinner at the same time. And for some reason, I felt a bit rushed. I felt I had to get, get, get this food down as quickly as possible. And I, because no one could see me, I was there on my own in, in, in the office. I, I think it's fair to say uh, that uh, my table manners uh, left a lot to be desired. Anyway, I was halfway through my dinner... And a message popped up from Cy, and it was a, a funny little message. It said, um, we can hear your plate sound, sir. And I looked at the screen, and I realized that my audio and visual were on. <laughs> so instead of watching Alpha on the, the main screen, the group were watching, I, I don't know, feeding time at the zoo on the little screen in the corner. And it's a bit like that with life. You know, we can kid ourselves that our thoughts and our feelings and our motives are hidden, but the audio and the visual are on. God sees right into our hearts. He sees exactly what's going on there. And the Corinthians were motivated by pride. That's what was going on in their hearts. Paul says they were puffed up. They wanted to belong to an elite group within the church. They'd elevated particular leaders, Paul, Apollos, Peter, or whoever, and they're saying, yeah, we follow this leader. We're the best Christians within the church, and we've got it right, and everyone else has got it wrong. And they boast of their wealth, their comfort, and their affluence. 
as if that was evidence of God's blessing and approval. They may have even boasted about their spiritual gifts. In short, they were boasting about God's blessing. They were boasting about God's blessing. And it's actually quite easy to do this. You know, God blesses us with something. And we put it down to our own skill, ingenuity, and hard work. Kind of move God out of the picture. It can be tempting to look at the stuff around us. Maybe our house or our land or our car or our jobs or whatever. And think, yeah, I've done this. I've made it happen. I've, I deserve this. I've earned it. But we should recognize that we have been blessed. We've been blessed. We live in Australia. Either we were born here or God has enabled us to come here. Uh, this country has the highest wealth per capita in the world. There's nobody more wealthy, generally speaking, than Australians. It is a real blessing and a privilege to live in this country. Most of us have had access to a first-rate education. In Australia, there's no war or famine, and the natural disasters we do have, though serious, are relatively low impact because we have the means to deal with them. You know, if you live in Bangladesh and your house is washed away, that's it. You're done. If you survive it, there's no insurance. There's no government going to back you up. There's nothing. You're just, just destitute. If you're raised in a loving family, that's a huge advantage. I appreciate not everyone uh, here that would have been the case for. But if you change any of those variables, where you were born, your education, your background, the presence or absence of war, famine, natural disaster, change any one of those things, and there's a, a good chance that you would not be doing quite so well. If I was born in a, a village in Yemen, or the Democratic Republic of Congo, or Tajikistan, or Ukraine, things would look very different for me right now. And those among us who have come from less privileged backgrounds will probably be more aware than most of how much the Lord has blessed us. Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why did you boast as if you did not? Like you can't boast about a gift. It's a gift. And this is especially true of our salvation. We don't belong to God's kingdom because we lead good Christian lives. We're not saved because we've met God's moral standard. None of us have. We have nothing to boast about except Christ and him crucified. Jesus has done for us that which we could never have done for ourselves. Inclusion in God's kingdom is a gift that we have received from Jesus, even though we are completely undeserving. We don't deserve to be part of God's kingdom any more than we deserve to um, have been born or to live in Australia. We should have a very sober and humble view of our standing in the world. The Corinthians were not humble. They thought they'd arrived. They thought that God had blessed them because they were such great Christians. In verse 8, Paul says to them, 
Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign. He's being a bit sarcastic. You've begun to reign and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. The Corinthians thought that they'd received all of God's blessings in the here and now. But Paul wanted to show them that following Christ uh, may not always be easy and comfortable. So he contrasts their experience of ease and comfort with the experience of himself and the apostles. He says, for it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as human beings. In the Roman world, when armies returned victorious from battle, there was um, a huge parade full of pomp and ceremony. And at the back of the procession would come the captives, the prisoners who were destined to die in the arena. So Paul envisages the apostles coming at the end of this cosmic parade for all the world and those in the heavenly realms to see. How different that is from the way the Corinthians see themselves. And to hammer the point home, what Paul says next is also somewhat sarcastic. He says, we are fools for Christ, but you are so wise. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. And this next bit, he's not being sarcastic. He says, to this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. The Corinthians have a strong theology of glory and a very weak theology of the cross. They think that all God's benefits and blessings are to be received in this life to the exclusion of the kind of hardships that Paul is describing. The way they see it, foolish people experience those kinds of hardships that the apostles are going through, but not them, not them. The Corinthians are interested in ease, comfort, status, and popularity. So authentic, sacrificial, faithful Christian ministry is very difficult for them to accept, much less engage with. But if they are to be an effective church, they must drop their pride and be fools for Christ. They don't have to go looking for hardship, but they should recognize their blessings as blessings. They should humble themselves and engage in genuine Christian ministry. This also serves as a warning for us, because if we consider our own lives Who are we more like? The persecuted apostles or the comfortable Corinthians? How many of us are hungry and thirsty? How many of us are in rags or brutally treated or homeless or persecuted? In the last 2,000 years, there has never been a time or a place where it's been easier to be a Christian than 21st century Australia. In our situation, it's easy to be a Christian, and it's easy to have a strong theology of glory. This idea that God wants to give us our whole inheritance 
here and now. And we, you know, you hear it from prosperity preachers, the, the prosperity gospel. You know, if, if you pray enough and you give enough money to the church, then God will give you your heart's desire. It's not true. Ultimately, it might be, but not necessarily in the here and now. And when the chief shepherd, uh, 1 Peter 5, 4 says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. When Jesus returns, we will be glorified. But in this life, most Christians are not going to look very glorious at all. That's the reality. So it's easy to have a strong theology of glory, not so easy to have a strong theology of the cross. Take, take, to take up our cross daily and follow Christ. To be willing to be a fool for Christ, even though it may cost us our reputations. To dedicate our lives to Christ, to offer all we have to him. It's not so easy because it means loosening our grip on our nice, comfortable, convenient lives. There are Christians in other parts of the world who are impoverished, persecuted, and despised, yet they diligently and faithfully carry out the ministry entrusted to him, to them, with very few resources, risking their very lives in the process. That's happening now in other parts of the world. Heaven forbid, heaven forbid that we should squander the wealth, the riches, the ease, the comfort, the opportunities, the blessings that have been poured out on us. Heaven forbid that we should squander that. Maybe we ought to be a little bit more foolish for Christ. Foolish in the way we spend our time and our money. Foolish in our hopes, dreams, aspirations and goals. Foolish in our priorities. Foolish in our selfless commitment to Christ and to his church. Because we too have been entrusted with the mystery God has revealed. And we too must prove faithful. Paul takes quite a strong tone in this part of the letter. And then towards the end, he softens it. He says, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Paul loves the Corinthians as a loving father, loves his children and wants the very best for them. When he says he's a father to them, he doesn't mean an authority figure. He means that under the Spirit's guidance and direction, he was the one to lead them to Christ. He's their spiritual father in that sense. Finally, Paul urges the Corinthians to imitate him. In what way should they imitate him? Well, they should become fools for Christ, taking up their cross and taking up their place at the back of the procession. Not by looking for difficulties. That would be foolish. We don't look for troubles and persecution. But by dropping their pride, acknowledging their blessings as blessings, redirecting their resources and reordering their lives so that collectively they can proclaim Christ and him crucified. 2,000 years later, and we are called to do exactly the same thing. And this is where true life, fulfillment, and blessing are to be found. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we recognize that sometimes we get a little bit too comfortable. We get a little bit too wrapped up in our comfortable, convenient lives. We can become very selfish and inward-focused. We can even, in, in, in our own way, try to build our own little kingdom. And we pray that, that this won't be us. We pray that we'll recognize the tremendous blessings that have poured out upon us, but also the responsibility to use the gifts and the resources that we've got to, uh, the gifts and resources we've been given to build your kingdom. Father, help us to reorder our priorities and our lives, to put you first, and to live our lives for you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.